From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dane Hill. So glad you could tune in here on the program this afternoon when I'm really happy to welcome to the show Dr. Brett Moore because we're going to be talking today about something that will be of interest to many of you, especially people who have dogs. And we're going to be talking today about how our dogs see some myths surrounding canine vision. And so let me welcome you to the program, Dr. Moore. I'm really glad to have you on today. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. This is an exciting topic that I think there's a lot of misconceptions about, so it would be fun to talk about it for a little bit. Yeah, okay. Well, if we can, as is the case when I've ever done shows about vision and eyes, I wonder if you could just give us kind of a little overview about the different parts of the eye, since I think that we'll be describing some structures of the eye today that some of us may not be as familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important thing that catches us up when we start thinking about the eye and vision, how well animals see, how well we see, are two things. One, the visual system is very complex and it consists of multiple components. And so sometimes when we're talking about a dog can see better than a human or a human can see better than a dog, you really have to break that down into multiple components. And we can talk about those in just a sec. The other thing I wanted to keep in mind as we talk today is when we try to understand how an animal sees, we have to sort of remove ourselves from our own visual perspective. We know very well how we see, and it's hard not to portray that onto an animal that we're thinking about. So kind of keep your mind open and free as we think about how other animals can see it, maybe very differently conceptually from how we do ourselves. Wow. Okay. So, so yeah. So th- I mean, first of all, but let me. I don't mean to interrupt you here because I know you're about to answer a little bit more thoroughly some of the different parts of the eye. I, I think that's such a great yeah. point to make, and that is that we only understand really our own experiences firsthand. And those of us who have been gifted with sight, well, we can understand what it means to look at something, even if it does take quite a big uh, leap of our imaginations to really contemplate the complexity of the fact that we are taking this source of light and transferring it transferring it into some sort of chemical process that then goes into our brains. I mean, that is all uh, essentially a, a kind of sorcery to me. Uh, and yet, what I think that it is not unnatural for us to do, just because it's so understandable, is to then assume that this is how it is for other animals, dogs included, when when it's probably certainly not. I mean, famously, we know that some animals see way better than human beings in ways that we can't even imagine. Some animals might see more colors than we do. Some animals might have a kind of acuity that we couldn't even contemplate. So there's that part of it. And it's a great, great advice for us to kind of just keep our minds open when we talk about how our pets see, whether they be dogs or or anybody else. So uh, you were about to continue. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, it's okay. So as you think about how animals see, the very first thing we have to think about is how light gets inside the eye. And so the light travels through the clear cornea, the structure that contacts are placed on, and that represents the first refractive object of the eye, the second of that being the lens. And so these two refractive objects, they basically take light, they converge it together so that it's focused on a single spot. 
on the retina. The retina then takes that focused spot of light, it converts it to an electrical signal, and that is sent up to the brain via the optic nerve. And within all of this, there are a lot of different components. We're going to talk mostly about the components that exist within the retina today, where the visual processing, the precortical processing, and then within the brain, the cortical processing occurs. Because aside from that, there are many differences, of course, but the eye of all vertebrates or animals with a bony spine or a spine have a very similar camera-style eye, meaning they have a lens and a film. And really the film or the retina is what a lot of variability comes from. And so within the retina, there are many different cell populations. And we think of it sometimes too simplistically as in rods and cones, as you've probably heard before, some better for night vision, some better for day vision. And it's way more complex than that. So just to give an example, the third cell line of processing after the rods and cones take that light and convert it to a retinal or to an electrical signal, it goes through several different cell types and then ultimately onto the ganglion cells. And as these extensions of the ganglion cells that form the optic nerve, there's it's much more complex than just ganglion cells because some species have upwards of 30 types of ganglion cells and all have very different functions. But the first visual component that I wanted to mention is important to think about ganglion cells for because they represent the last line of transfer to the brain. And so you could have a million cones and rods that are gathering light and converting into an electrical signal. But if you only have three ganglion cells, the brain is only getting three signals. And vice versa, if you have one cone and rod and a million ganglion cells, and the brain's getting a million signals as long as the light falls upon the photoreceptors and that is transferred to those ganglion cells. So essentially, there's a bottleneck of information and it ultimately rests on the ganglion cells to give that to the brain. Therefore, the ganglion cells are a wonderful proxy for visual acuity. So when we talk about how well an animal can see, how sharp they can see, we talk about visual acuity. And that's how we can determine that is with ganglion cells. You've just, you just told us a whole lot here. And I wonder if we can back up just a little bit, because I think that many sure. of us can understand sort of the idea of the surface of the structure of the eye that we can see. And I think that some of us can understand, okay, well, we've got an optic nerve and so forth. Of the parts that you've discussed so far, how many are within the kind of spherical shape that we think of as the eyeball? All of them, except for part of the optic nerve. The optic nerve forms, in. It's, there's part of it inside the eye, and then it leaves the eye, and that's what goes to the brain. Okay. So the retina that I talked about with these different cells, it's a thin neural tissue that lines the whole back inside of the eye. It's like a little coating on the inside, a neural coating. And those all funnel to the optic nerve, which is at one small point that leaves the eye and goes to the brain. Okay, great. So when, when you're talking then about something like the cones and the rods, where again are they within the eye? They're in the retina. So they're in that back layer that receives the light. I understand. Okay. So the size of the eye of an individual dog, does that have any bearing on how these processes work? It does. The size actually contributes just as much to visual acuity as the cell density because there's a magnification factor there. However, within dogs, eye size it's actually strikingly similar across breeds, despite very large differences in body size. 
sure if you have a Chihuahua and you have a Great Dane or something, the eye sizes are going to be different, but they're not as different as you would imagine. Okay. So you, you could think that Great Danes could have higher acuity, but it also depends on, remember, the cell density. And with a greater size of an eye, sometimes the cell density is a little bit lower, so it may equal out. The retina, which is kind of at the opposite side of the eye from the cornea and the pupil and the lens and the iris and all of that, the yeah. the medium that's in between, what is that made out of? The kind of the bulk of this spherical eyeball. In the front of the eye, just behind the cornea and in front of the lens, it's more fluid. It's called the aqueous humor. And it circulates just within the front part of the eye and then leaves the eye. The back part of the eye between the lens and the retina, which is the biggest chamber, it's filled with a, more of a jelly, kind of like jello, and it's called the vitreous humor. Is that vitreous humor transparent to allow the light to pass through towards the retina? Yeah, yeah. Ideally, both chambers are, and, and, and all, actually all the optical media are completely transparent to help light pass through. Okay, and it is only because the sclera that covers all of this vitreous humor is white that it appears that the eyeball is white, correct? Yeah. Okay. All right, so now I think I'm kind of understanding the anatomy of the eye. Uh, when we left off, you'd been talking about rods and cones, and you'd been talking about the optic nerve, and the optic nerve is this part at the far back, the far opposite end of, say, the cornea, and mm -hmm. that actually goes into the, and makes connections within the brain, correct? Yes. Okay, all right, so... I uh, had interrupted you. Uh, please proceed. No, that's okay. Thank you for clarifying. I know, I, I, despite it being a really small structure, it's super complicated. So sometimes super, it's helpful to super complicated. It yeah, it is super complicated. Yeah. yeah. So we talked a little bit about visual acuity and one of the cell types in the retina contributing to that, and that's the ganglion cells. And what's really fascinating about ganglion cells is that their density across the retina is different in different regions. So if you think about how we look at one another, we focus our eyes, a specific part of our eye on that structure to read, to see who somebody is, to drive. And that very small spot in our retina is a very specialized area that provides super high visual acuity. You think of that in the contrast and think about how your peripheral vision is. It's not so good, right? If you could tell that there's something coming toward you, but you may not be able to differentiate, differentiate that from a bus or a bear or whatever it may be. You just know that something's moving. So that's kind of a representation of not only how different levels of acuity may be perceived, but also how different acuity could be across your individual retina. <clears throat> and what's really Interesting about that example is that you can think about it in terms of other how other animals see. So, for example, there's been some eagles that have been reported to have acuity eight times that of our visual acuity at our highest spot, which is what we use to read and to drive. So you can imagine eight times more clear, eight times more magnified, more sharp. It's pretty impressive. And just to take that back to dogs, this is an area where our vision is better than dogs. So we have more acute vision. Um, 
our eyes are set up to do those specific things. Our ecological needs are to do those specific things with high acuity. When dogs have other ecological needs for their eyes, and we'll talk about those in a second, but Visual acuity, in terms of that, as far as that goes, we have better capabilities than our dogs. Do. I'm going to go ahead and ask you here a really naive question, and that is, how do we know? I think that we can observe from the behavior of, say, you know, birds of prey that they can notice a small mouse in the middle of a meadow from high in the air. Uh, but with 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 dogs, how are we able to determine? that their acuity is not as uh, robust as ours, given that, you know, you can't ask a dog to read a newspaper column to you. Yeah, there's a couple of ways that this is determined. And one of them, one of those is morphologically. So we calculate acuity based on eye size and the density of these ganglion cells in the retina. There's a very specific formula that allows for that. And we get an output there's actually in the same denominator as when you go to the optometrist and they give you the, the old 20 over 20 test, we can get a similar type of output for that for different species based on this calculation. Okay, I understand. So these ganglion cells, you, can, you could look at the retina of an animal and you could count, say, the number of ganglion cells and infer from that number whether that animal has greater or lesser visual acuity? Yeah. Okay. And does it go ditto with rods and cones that you can use to determine how well an animal might see in the dark or what have you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about it, that's another great component of vision. And really what that's doing, since the rods and the cones are the cells in the retina that are gathering the light to initiate that electrical process to go to the brain, and so the ones capturing the light, they are more involved in one thing they're involved with is the sensitivity of how you can see. So specifically the rods, how sensitive is your vision, meaning how dim of light can you perceive? And so the more rods, obviously, the more chance you have of, it, of capturing one of those single photons of light that are going through your eye in a very dim light and converting that to electrical signal and therefore seeing it. So, yes, we can also map and understand how sensitive an eye is based on those cell densities as well. Okay. so bef- that, yeah. a great... Go ahead. Now, before I interrupted you, uh, you had been explaining uh, that, yes, dogs indeed are believed to have less visual acuity than human beings and certainly less than some of these birds of prey. But yet, mm-hmm. this seems to be enough for a dog, right? Evolutionarily, their eyes have probably been, you know, adapted to do whatever it needs, a dog needs to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. They, it's not that they have poor visual acuity, they just don't have the specific needs for as high of acuity as we do. And that that energy that goes into producing a structure that's superiorly functional, like our visual acuity, there's a lot of developmental energy and, and continual energy devoted to that structures. And so dogs have allocated that energy elsewhere for things that suit their ecological needs better. And one of those being uh, sensitivity, as we just talked about with the rods and cones. So humans have more cones than they do rods. And most, more total rods and cones 
than dogs. Dogs have more rods. The rods are better for night vision and the cones are better for day vision. So dogs, although they have worse visual acuity, actually have better sensitivity and therefore can see better in dim light than humans. So in that way, their eyes aren't worse than ours. You can see how the multidimensional aspect of vision, how various components, it's hard to say dogs see worse than humans because in some ways they see better, in some ways they do see worse. Oh, look, I've got to say that as I am getting older, my vision in dim light is getting even worse, and I don't know how that process works. However, I could just tell you that I would be very grateful uh, and would even be willing to sacrifice some other element of my uh, vision in order to have a little bit better vision in lower light situations. And I think that this is not uncommon as people get older. Uh, you see sometimes older people using a flashlight to look at a menu or something like that, and, and I'm, on, I'm on track for that. But what can one pinpoint why natural selection might have given dogs this increased sensitivity in low light? No, I think it's just on the spectrum of how they tended to forage and what time time periods they needed to be active. I mean, you look at cats, for the example, cats are a whole other step towards the, the night vision than dogs. They have a lot stronger of that. And there's other structures in the eye that contribute to this as well. It's not just about the retinal cells. And so we have a full story of things that contribute towards them having a need for it, and it probably has to do with when they are actively foraging or main, main, making sure they're not becoming prey themselves. You know when you drive your car or you shine your flashlight and you see that bright bright ref, uh, reflex, that bright shining back from an animal's eyes compared to the the red that we see when we take a camera picture of ourselves, sometimes that red flash artifact. Right. Those are because we have very different structures back there. And the really bright shining part is another component of the retina called the tapetum. And the tapetum is just a bright reflective structure that actually makes light that is not accepted by those photoreceptors, the rods and cones, get bounced back into the eye and come back to give them a second chance. And so it increases the sensitivity of the eye and therefore you can see better in the dark. No kidding. So is there some sort of material around the inside of the of the eye, that is to say, you know, within the bounds of this uh, eyeball itself? Maybe, you know, does the retina kind of extend uh, as kind of part of this sphere? And as it light sort of bounces around in there, it can just be picked up anywhere? I mean, but, but does that affect how the where exactly it is that the eye and the brain perceives this light coming from? It does reduce the what we call contrast sensitivity a little bit. So when you have light bouncing back and reflecting off the structure and then coming back and getting a second chance to be absorbed by the rods or the cones, it does reduce a little bit your acuity. But at that point, we're talking about dim light and we're, we're trying to capture as many photons as possible, so the trade-off is worth it. Overall, the picture that you're kind of painting for us is one of very complex structure, the eye of a dog or probably in any mammal in any case. Uh, you know, and there, there's some differences between some animals in maybe the way that their eyes look. For instance, some animals, maybe the 
the shape of the iris is the iris the part that stops down and in, in, uh, in bright light might become yeah smaller okay so some animals seem to have uh, an iris shape that looks a little bit different like a goat for instance doesn't have the same sort of look as a dog uh, but I, I don't mm-hmm. know how much of a difference that plays in the way that an animal sees it does it um, the iris's main job is to really limit or allow more light in, depending on the lighting conditions of the environment. And the horses and goats and those animals have kind of an elongated shape. That's very specific to the type of retinal orientation they have. So, for example, in the retina, they have, we talked about a single point in in humans, and we talked about a single point uh, in the retina being for high acuity, you know, when we look at each other or what we use to read. Horses and goats, they have a very elongated region of high acuity. It's horizontally elliptical. And so that matches very well the shape of their pupil. And so when they close their their pupil down in bright light, the light is really effectively getting to that region across their retina that has a high cell density, and therefore they can see with high acuity. It doesn't limit their high acuity by constricting their pupil because of their pupil shape. Oh, this is I mean, this is so fascinating, and I feel that we're kind of just scratching the surface, uh, so to speak. But yeah. but when we come back after this short break, Dr. Moore, I want to talk a bit more about how our dogs see, how it might be different from us, and maybe dispel some myths. So right now, let me just remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brent Moore, and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brett Moore, and we're talking about how dogs see. And in the last segment of the program, we got a pretty decent overview of the structure of the eye itself and kind of an explanation of how some of these parts contribute to what it is that a dog sees with its eyes. And if we could now, uh, Dr. Moore, I'd love to talk a bit more about what we do know about how dogs see. I mean, some of this is going to be based on examinations of dogs' eyes and maybe counting things like, you know, rods and cones and so forth and making a determination that dogs might be better at this or a little bit less uh, adept at, at one particular aspect of vision, at least compared to human beings or compared to, say, you know, eagles or falcons or something to that effect. Um, but all of this probably works in conjunction with just how dogs kind of live their lives. That is to say, a dog isn't going to be a creature that needs to do a lot of fine work. <laughs> You know, a dog's not going to be painting Fabergé eggs, for instance, so it probably doesn't need to have that kind of level of a vision. But a dog might need to see a little bit well under dim light conditions. A dog might need to be able to have, uh, you know, a, a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that in order to be a successful dog. Let's talk a little bit about what we know about how dogs see. Everything we kind of talked about so far, it points to 
you know, as we think about what dogs, the assumption is kind of that dogs are their ancestors. So wolves talk about needing to see in dim light, and those types of things. Clearly dogs today don't have quite the same needs as they, as they used to. And so that's kind of been our, our assumption all along as we think about that. What's really fun is trying to figure out how we've changed dog vision to be what it is today through selective breeding since the wolf. Is, and it, is it possible I, to determine? Yes, it is. That's a, one thing that I'm studying here at UF is how we've changed dog vision since the wolf. And if you think about what what kind of needs we have placed onto dogs or what their focus is typically on instead of on foraging and survival and those types of things, their their vision is more frontally focused. It's focused on us generally, looking at us, watching us, and the the things that we place in their environment. And as you look to see how we've bred dogs to look more different from the wolf, so this applies more so to short-nosed dogs and small dogs and those types, we've changed their facial structure a lot. And that all has kind of directed their eyes to be more frontally focused and potentially their vision to be more focused on us. That's fascinating. I think of the different shapes of some animals' faces and the orientation of the eyes themselves. And you have, you know, for instance, uh, human beings' eyes just kind of, you know, front and center in the face, looking forward. Uh, You might say the same of some kinds of owls. Um, Then you've got animals where the eyes are kind of almost on opposite sides of the skull, like a, a horse or something like that. Uh, and mm-hmm. and uh, is it possible that, you know, historically in past, dogs had their eyes maybe oriented or a slightly different way? Yeah, when you look at wolves and the more long-faced, the sight hounds, their eyes tended to be a little bit more on the sides of their head. And we're doing a study right now to actually prove this, so we don't know the full answer, but we are mapping what's called the visual fields of dogs to look at where where dogs can see with both eyes, binocularity, where, I, where dogs can see with one eye, and then their whole essential visual field around their head to see how we've changed that since we've gotten away from the wolf. Oh, I want to ask you a lot of questions about this, but before I do, is there a good reason evolutionarily why an animal might benefit from having its eyes sort of aimed further apart or more be more focused towards the middle? Yeah, and that, largely that's because of, typically we think about prey-predatory interactions. So from a prey perspective, you definitely have to look for food, but a large part of your attention it goes towards making sure you don't become food yourself. And so having a really wide field of view is very important. So you see a lot of prey species like, small birds and small, even small rodents and things, and rabbits, or rabbits like the ultimate prey species, they, their eyes are completely on the side of their head, which means that they have really expansive field of view, but a very, very small binocular field of view. All right, meaning that they would have a little bit harder perceiving 
depth as well as, say, an animal whose eyes are more oriented towards the center, and yet their peripheral vision compared to our own might be substantial. I mean, they might almost have, uh, you know, practically 300-plus degree field of view. Yeah, exactly. I gotcha. Uh, All right, so that makes sense. Now, tell me um, about this research that you're doing, because it sounds like it's absolutely fascinating. How do you make some of these determinations to know what it is that a dog can see? How do these tests work? Well, to determine their visual field, we simply are able to look through an ophthalmoscope, find the the margin to where their retina exists and can receive light. And we do this at every 10 degree elevations all the way around the head. And we write these numbers down. They're based on a 360 degree sphere. And we mark where the ret- the border of the retina is in both eyes as we go around the head. And from there, we can basically map out where the eyes are both seen, where only one eye is, is able to see, and where the other eye is able to see. And we can make a full a full map of their visual field. And are you determining, are you making any determinations yet? I mean, what are your findings so far? We actually just started three days ago actually collecting data for this. And so far, it's going really well. We had, we've only had two different dogs in and just preliminarily, the one dog had a much longer nose, and the other dog was a really short-nosed dog. The short-nosed dog did have wider fields of view. I don't want to make any conclusions because we have to run statistics and stuff once we get more. But point is, I, I kind of one of our predictions is that the animals with shorter noses and more frontally placed eyes are going to have a wider binocular field. And we think that it probably has to do with less pressure to keep a watch out for predators or to look for prey and more focus really on us and interacting with humans and therefore a greater need for just having binocular vision. Will you attempt to study as many dog breeds as you can? I mean, in everything from, you know, a pug to an Afghan hound in terms of face shapes? Yeah. Yeah, we really have. We, we've got about 80 or 80 or 90 dogs lined up as many breeds as possible and we're going to analyze it in a continuous form meaning we're not selectively grouping animals together but we're just we're going to do some genetic testing and then really understand how they uh, if they kind of group themselves naturally based on our findings and then see what what the reason for that grouping might be oh that's really fascinating so doing some kind of genetic testing will help you really kind of uh understand what kind of dog it is, what it's really related to, rather than maybe just a determination based on its appearance entirely. Yeah. I gotcha. Ultimately, a kind of study like this, what do you hope to to learn in the end? And and I, I don't want you to do a very unscientific thing right now by telling me in advance what you think you'll find. Um, but had, no, you, it's okay. had you gone in with any particular hypothesis? Yeah. We, I expect that with increased selection from the wolf through our breeding process, that we've changed the visual fields of dogs. And I think we've done it to help to, I guess, emphasize that their relationship with us and therefore more frontal vision. And so I think we are going to see just that 
shorter-nosed dogs have more frontally placed eyes and greater binocularity. What really the implication for this is is that we have dogs that are, excuse me, there's more components to this study. It's not just about visual fields. We're also measuring the things that I talked about with visual acuity and color vision and all this stuff. And so I'm trying to evaluate and understand whether or not we've changed dogs' eyes for the worse for some ways. And for example, with the case of seeing eye dogs, how can we make sure we preserve their vision to be as good as they, it can be? And how do we maybe even improve it through our selective breeding? Oh, that's fascinating because I hadn't even thought about that. But on one hand, I thought to myself, well, I mean, you know, look, if our dogs don't see as well as some of their ancestors that were, you know, more wolf-like, well, it hardly matters because our dogs live in our houses and, uh, you know, maybe they catch frisbees at the, you know, at the more uh, intense end of the spectrum. But then you brought up dogs that actually perform indispensable work in helping human beings. And uh, a seeing-eye dog has a critically important job. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So... This is this is really interesting. I want us to take, uh, I think, uh, one more break. And then when we come back, I want to talk about some other aspects of a dog's uh, vision uh, and, and get into some little more, more detail about that. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. I'm Danny Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brett Moore. And we'll be back more with more right after this. Stay tuned. Back to Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. So happy to have as my guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Brett Moore. And we're speaking today about how dogs see and we'll dispel some myths and learn quite a bit about our canine companions and what exactly they see. And uh, Dr. Moore, how well do we understand what dogs see in terms of color? Yeah, so color vision, that's an interesting topic because color vision can mean a couple different things. So if you think of the, the color spectrum, you go all the way from ultraviolet to violet, all the way up to red and then infrared, there's a big spectrum of different colors. And that spectrum is a continuous scale, meaning that red isn't just red. There's infinite possibilities of different reds of all different shades as they blend and go down to the next down to green and then down to blue and down to all these other colors they're all interrelated in some way like that and so you can have an animal that has excellent color vision because they have a really wide spectrum of view meaning that they could see the really deep purple and the really vibrant red and so the wavelength range, maybe from, I guess I'm 350 all the way to 650, that's one way. The other way that you can have excellent color vision is that you can see a lot of variability within a particular color, as we call it. So maybe you only see from part of the purple to part of the red, but within there, you can see so many different iterations of that color. So the contrast is very high. That's another way. So in some ways, we are better at color vision than dogs because we can see 
wider in that scale. We have four different, um, we have three different, four different types of photoreceptors, whereas dogs have less. And so we have rods and then three types of cones. Dogs only really have two. And so they are effectively colorblind in a way, like some humans are, but that doesn't mean they don't see color. They just don't see as many different colors. However, dog eyes can actually see more shades of the colors that they can see than we can. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, I want to stop you here just for a second to, to say that this might be one of those places where just as a human being, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this because mm-hmm. I, I only know color as I perceive it as a human being. And if you tell me that some species of birds can see colors that I can't even imagine what they look like, or some animals can see maybe fewer colors but different gradients and so forth, uh, or you know d- different kinds of contrast or, or whatever it may be, it's so hard for me to imagine that. And even trying to create some sort of graphic representation that a human being could understand, it still wouldn't work because let's let's say that you were able to determine scientifically a particular shade of red at one end of the spectrum that an, an animal might be able to see that, that, I don't know, maybe I couldn't. Well, I could never see it anyway. So it would, it would just be a yeah. description as much as anything. Uh, and so this is one of those areas where I, I just feel I'm always going to come up short in understanding it. How, as a how as a scientist, how as a researcher, uh, do you conceptualize these these situations in which our understanding is necessarily limited? Fortunately, technology has allowed for the imagination to be less active, and we we have filters that we can we can place over images based on the data that we get on these studies to understand at least from a, only a color vision standpoint, how that may appear to a dog. So dogs tend to not have the ability to see red. And so most red things kind of turn to this yellow, grayish, greenish color. And you have to think about, it's not just the bright reds, it's really everything that has red in it. So violet is blue with red. And so purple to them or violet, kind of has more of a bluish color because the red is is absent from that. So those are the that's really the main big difference. Uh, the green is kind of more muted in gray in dogs too, but and this is just our understanding of my point is who knows what the brain is doing. The brain in a dog just like a brain in a human like red to me could be different from red to you because of our not just learned experience but also from what our brain is doing and so this is just us studying their eyes and figuring out what their eyes are capable. It doesn't have anything to do with what their brain is actually converting the, the image to, although it probably matches physiologically. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. And, and it is true even uh, with human beings that someone's, <laughs> someone's perceptive, someone's perception of what one color is, is different. And uh, if you want further proof of this, uh, then live with the person when you're trying to pick a paint color uh, and, and, and see how differently someone else might perceive colors. Uh, but okay, so if their vision for red is not as 
good as ours is, then probably even orange is affected and, and some of the other yeah. colors that have red in it as well. I mean, but is there any disadvantage to them for this? They must compensate. and Maybe to them, the difference between a female cardinal and a male cardinal isn't as pronounced as it would be to us, but, well, how much does that affect their lives? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They they make up for the difference in color vision by being able to see, for example, more shades of the blues that they can see or more shades of the yellows that they can see. And they have just a greater need for other components like night vision than we do. Right. So their energy is allocated elsewhere. Right. Uh, and you talked about those eagles earlier that have fantastic visual acuity. Yes. They can't see anything at night because they really don't have very many rods at all. And so they, they really sacrificed that to get something stronger in one area. That's what dogs do too. Uh, whereas something, an animal like uh, an owl or some other kind of birds probably see very well at night, but have, yeah. uh, you know, there's some other compromise that their eye has made in order to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, so dogs, I don't know if there's a good way to kind of summarize this, but I mean, dogs have the eyesight that they need to effectively be dogs here in the 21st century, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but going back in time, as you are sort of describing in that study that you're doing, is there a way to speculate how uh, dogs have seen in the past other than going to some of the ancestors that dogs have, which might be, what, a wolf? Um, but I don't know how much further back you can go than that. I mean, you could study a wolf, presumably. Yeah, that's probably the best way. We're, we're probably going to use that as a proxy and then determine genetically who's most closely related to the wolf. And it's probably going to be some of the kind of ancient breed, more sighthound types. When you talk to to pet owners, uh, what kind of what kind of questions and what kind of misconceptions do they have about their dogs and their their eyesight? One of them, very simply, is that dogs don't see very well, anyways, because they have such good hearing and smelling. And sure, their their smelling is so far superior to ours; it's not even funny. But they actually have some very very good features of vision, and they're just different than the ones that we experience, like we talked about. And so that's something to keep in mind. Other things I get a lot, this is the the age-old question of, can my dog see the TV? And the answer is yes, the dog can watch the TV, whether they have interest in the TV. Some dogs do and some don't. But they do see it differently. They see it from a color perspective differently. It's probably a little bit more blurry. Something else that we didn't talk about that, well, not so much anymore, but at least when TVs, in the older TVs that actually had a like a tube, for example, there's something in vision called speed of vision, and it results in a flicker if you don't see fast enough, or excuse me, if you see too fast. So, for example, humans, we can see about 60 flickers per second. And so if there's anything that's flickering slower than 60 flicks per second, it looks like a strobe to us. If the flicker rate is higher than 60, it's a continuous light. We don't detect the strobe. Dogs have a higher flicker rate. It's about 70 to 80 flicks per second. So, for example, if 
let's say one of the old time TVs has a flicker rate of 65. We would see that as a continuous picture. But a dog would see that as a strobe, like a strobe light on the TV. And that's something that used to be the case. And this applies to other species. So if you look at birds, people that have pet birds, birds can have a flicker rate of over 100, sometimes up to 120. And that's fast enough that standard light bulbs in a house can appear like strobe lights. And so my advice is always, if you have a pet bird, my advice is to get for the room that they live in to get high flicker lights so they don't live in a disco. Yeah. Wow. What a what a great point. And that's fascinating. And I don't think I would have ever thought about that. I mean, so, I mean, to a dog, you know, going to a cinema and seeing a film projected at 24 frames a second would would really seem uh, like a, a strobe light effect, I, I suppose. Yeah. This is, I mean, that's a really great consideration to make. I mean, I, I don't know how many cycles a second the sun shines, how many hertz or, or whatever that's measured, but historically that would have been the, the light that all animals see by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that there's even a difference, right? And it probably has to do with the need for rapid vision. So are you trying to catch insects mid-flight like some of those birds are versus... Yeah feeding off of stationary things that don't really move too much. Yeah. I mean, all of this is completely fascinating. And here's where I'll confess, Dr. Moore, that the eye is one of these parts of the body that no matter how many times I have a discussion with it, with either you or, or one of your colleagues on this program, I find it just endlessly riveting because here is an organ that at least to us as human beings, and maybe slightly less to a dog, because as you pointed out, their their sense of smell is so vastly superior to our own. But nevertheless, eyesight is so so central to how we we receive the world around us. Indeed, you know, we can have a tactile sense of things, and we can hear sounds, and you know, we we can taste food and so forth. But uh, for, for many of us, our vision is really how we perceive the world. And so anything that helps me understand better the way our animals are perceiving world, at least in this visual way, uh, I, found, I find completely riveting. So I'm grateful to you for uh, giving your time to me today to, to talk about this. And I hope at some point in the future, we can speak again uh, as your study proceeds and maybe as you start to get some some results and draw some conclusions. Yeah, wonderful. I'd be happy to. All right. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Brett Moore is with the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, where I want to thank Sarah Carey and Amanda Buckley for their help with the program. I'm Dana Hill. Thanks so much for listening today, and I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye.